We want to be known as the organization that champions black women um, intrinsically and through and programmatically. Um, and so we created the above four campaign to raise awareness to say that we are more than four. And more than four is really that there's only 4% of art across museums and galleries that are from black women artists. And yeah, it's, it's a dismal number, right? It's like ridiculous. It's so low. It's so low. And I think we're, we're saying we're above that. And we do that by um, actually championing them through um, our social media campaign um, and then in public spaces. So we try to we're trying to host a national conversation around diversity, inclusion and access in the fine art industry through the ARPA for our campaign. Hello and welcome back to Snapshot Atlanta. I'm your host, Denor Sapolia. In this episode, I talked to Tiffany Latrice, founder of Tila Studios a co-working and community space for black women artists that empowers them to create and showcase their work. Did, did you always want to do this? Was this something that you you thought you wanted to do as a kid or is did this kind of arise naturally uh, later in your life? Yeah, um, you know, I get asked that question a lot and as I've kind of gotten more comfortable, you know, with Tila and what Tila means to me, I come across a pretty three important moments in my life. Mm -hmm. So I think it was, uh, the first time was in kindergarten. I won the art award. (laughs) I won the art award um, for the city of Chattanooga. And I got this bank bond that I actually still have. And um, it's like framed in my mom's house of when I first thought I was an artist. And then there's a second moment of when I was about 13 years old, I entered a, um, a Girls Inc. entrepreneurship camp. Uh-huh. And I actually was tasked with the opportunity of starting my own business um, or at pitching 13? it at 13 and Whoa. what that would look like and figuring out the finances behind it. And I actually created an art center for women okay. um, and pitched it to a community of business leaders. And I won $400. Okay. So, so you- that was the second moment. And then I think the third moment where I realized that fostering sisterhood and community amongst women of um, color was in in my master's program at Sarah Lawrence, where I researched Hmm. networks of black women artists in Philadelphia in the 18th century and how they were able to attain success in their career um, by leveraging each other's like relationships, kinships and networks. Mm -hmm. So there's these moments where I think I've always knew this is what I wanted to do, but I Mm -hmm. think um, it took a while to actually sit back and reflect on that. I, I want to know a little bit more about your your research. At, mm. at it was was this your undergraduate research, or um, were you were you doing grad school level? Yeah, stuff? I was doing graduate school because okay. I went to college at USC in Los Angeles. Okay, um, yeah. and I was the first um, child to really go all the way out to college in LA. And my mom wow. was like, you know, we didn't send you all the way to Los Angeles to do art. So you need to do something <laughs> yeah. that makes money. So I was actually in a degree, international relations with a focus on gender um, and with the attempt to go to law school. Okay. So yeah. <laughs> I did. I was studying for the LSAT. I was thinking that, you know, I was going to be this big time lawyer. Uh-huh. And I decided, you know, no, I'm not going to do that. So I quit. I like withdrew my LSAT um, testing day. And then I went flew <laughs> okay. up to New York. And um, I was thinking about getting my JD in, uh-huh. in history degree. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to throw away the JD and I'm going to get my history degree. And then I realized that Sarah Lawrence was the first 
um, college that offered a Masters of Women's History program. So there's a lot of history wow. at that school. And I just wanted to be a part of that because I've always been an advocate for women. And so I think wow. it was at that moment where I was like, okay, I'm going to choose me and not mm -hmm. what society expects me to do just because I'm smart or talented. I'm going to choose something that I'm passionate about and I'm going to commit to learning about that. Mm -hmm. So I was working at NBC Universal as well at the same time getting my master's in women's history at Sarah Lawrence. Wow. It was like one of the hardest things I've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> so just no free time. No free time at all. Oh at my gosh. All. Yeah. So what was something profound that you learned in your research and you've touched on a little bit mm -hmm. of, of, mm -hmm. of your findings but overall when you were researching these networks yeah uh, what really stood out to you yeah um i think a lot of times we're taught a singular type of history and mm -hmm. in my studies i really latched on to the idea of revisionist history so mm -hmm. looking at what is missing from history so if i take a historical narrative that is told to me through a very um patriarchy lens yeah what moments are missing that is overlooked mm -hmm. and when i was looking for those narratives i started going to the smithsonian and searching through archives and i found women's journals where i got to read about what was actually going on from their perspective to give me a holistic perspective of what they were actually doing to combat what was going on in the world where there was mm -hmm. lynching um all of those things that were happening so yeah. that really was like a light bulb to me because i'm like wow, what have I been missing out my whole life mm -hmm. that I never knew that there was people like me in the 18th century that was super disruptive yeah. and progressive. Do you think that these more diverse views of history were actively suppressed or do you think they were just forgotten because of the times that they were uh, written in? Yeah, I think they were actively suppressed, I would, okay. I would say. Um, because I think if when you look back from an archival perspective, there's a lot of um, documentation mm -hmm. about people of color and marginalized voices mm -hmm. contribution to his history. It's yeah. just making the choice of whether or not to include that in our history books. And I think our history books are owned by, you know, major corporations and publications. So right. all of those things affect what we learn and how we learn it um, to, to view ourselves as powerless instead mm -hmm. of powerful. So I think, um, yeah, I think it's intentional. I think what, we, what we've been raised to learn is very intentional, but I think taking on a women's history degree made me realize that, hey, I can revise what I've been taught. I can unlearn what I've learned. Mm -hmm. And that was very powerful for me to say that I come from this rich history that now I can act on and not be ignorant and think I'm the first. Right. Because what I'm doing is not anything new. One of the questions I, I do have is, is you know, how was uh, Tila an extension of this ideology that you had? Yeah, that's, that's a really great question. Um, I think, you know, when we think about spaces and creating community, we often say safe, right? Yeah. Like we want to create safe spaces, but I think that's really passive. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what we're what we're trying to do is create brave spaces, right? Brave mm -hmm. spaces where people can be their authentic and genuine selves and show up. Um, and be fully present for not only themselves, but they're for their community. Mm -hmm. And so we had to reshape too how we communicate safety because safety sometimes is like really passive or docile and yeah. submissive. Uh, so we had to figure out how do we want to show up in the world? And if these women in the 18th century and these 
Maya Angelou and all these amazing women that were doing really disruptive work, they were brave. They weren't, mm -hmm. they weren't playing it safe. So we have to take on that, those characteristics despite what's going on um, in the social and economic climate today. Mm -hmm. So we had a strategy retreat um, about a couple of months ago and we was like, no, we're not safe. Like, man, we're brave. We're empowered. We're brave. We're high spirited. Right. And I think once we adapted that, we showed up more vibrant in our community. Could you take me back to the early days of Tilo where, you oh, know, gosh. you would. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I really want to pick your brain about, you know, where did you get the idea from? You know, you've told me a little bit about, yeah. you know, your past and your entrepreneurial mm -hmm. um, journey. But, you know, when did this idea kind of come into your head and, and when did you decide to to really run with it and, and turn it into what it is today? Absolutely. So when I moved from New York City in 2014, mm -hmm. um, I wanted to pursue visual art. Okay. So I myself, like I'm an artist, I'm a painter and mm -hmm. I work in oil paints. That's where I, my medium is trained. And I, I do a lot I of textile you. work as well on large scale paintings. So I was selling my work for about 1500 to $2,500 online to collectors all over the US, but I was getting no traction in Atlanta. So mm -hmm. I was like, okay, if I'm able to sell this work and ship it, like why can't I be successful where I reside? And um, I started meeting with other artists in the city and I noticed that these pockets of black women artists who were phenomenal, like Unique yeah. Norman, Shaniqua Gay, were isolated. They were working independently in their studio and they mm -hmm. weren't talking amongst each other. And it was this moment with this black gallery owner, um, her name is September Gray. I had a studio visit with her. Mm -hmm. And she gave me the most candid and realist advice. She's like, Tiffany, your work is dope. You're great and mean with the paintbrush. But your work is like, doesn't really have a voice. Like I, I can see this work anywhere and it doesn't see, I don't see you in it. And so I was like, oh my gosh, light bulb. That was the feedback that I needed. And mm -hmm. I thought about all the other women that needed that feedback to get into these spaces, gallery, museum spaces. Mm -hmm. And I thought about what was currently going on in the gig of, or freelance economy in the tech space. And mm -hmm. I was like, well, why don't we have um, incubator programs or professional development programs for artists in the public space. So mm -hmm. taking them, most of our artists or artists of color mostly work in their home because studio space is so expensive. So I was like, why don't we bring in a model that takes affordable studio space, bring it to the public, a co-working space that we can operate in, tag on some professional development um, and kind of create our own, I call it visual arts incubator. So mm -hmm. that's how I kind of came up with it because I just think there was moments of professional development that people mm -hmm. were missing and there was access to studio space that people were also mi missing. So how can I solve that problem, but co-create together and bring a community where we feel empowered. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, when it took a, Tila has gone through like three iterations, you know, since we started in 2016. Mm -hmm. um, it hasn't always been here at the goat farm. It hasn't always been what it looks like today. Um, kind of like an, all over the place studio, but right. we've, we've been making it up with our community input, which mm -hmm. I think is really powerful to see where we've been going. Was it a hard transition from taking it from an idea to finding a space and everything? Like what was, what was that development process like? Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> you know, as a visual arts incubator is what we call it. And mm -hmm. it's for profit, you know? Oh, wow. Um, okay. so we are a social enterprise in that capacity. It, was difficult in terms of raising capital. And I don't come from generational wealth. Like mm -hmm. my mom, 
you know, at the time thought this was a hobby, a passion project. She was like, this is not investable. Right. And coming up with a new type of model for a niche market as well as a specific industry is jarring to a lot of funders and investors. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my first campaign was a GoFundMe campaign. Yeah. And while I was building Tila, I was at um, C4 Atlanta's Ignite program. And that program really taught me the skill sets of how to build a business. And the thing that was critical to Tila was a physical location. So the first thing I did was like look around my neighborhood in East Point and I said, I found a building that I loved. And I said, this is where I wanted to just launch Tila. Okay. Um, to be honest, I pitched the idea to the business owner. Mm -hmm. He was not vibing with me. And he was like, well, I'm gonna give you a challenge to do an art show in three weeks. Can you do it? And I said, well, this is my chance and opportunity to showcase my skill set. And I pulled it off and we raised over $5,000 that night and brought out like over 200 plus people to our new space. And people are like, are you a new business? And I was like, Whoa. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we actually had nothing. We didn't have our LLC. We didn't have a business bank account. You just hustled it. We just hustled that and showed up and showed <laughs> out. We had the like mayor of East Point there. We had everybody there, all these people. And they were like, oh my God, this is amazing. We need this. And I was like, oh yeah. And so the business owner was like, um, this is great. Like, what are you gonna do next? Mm -hmm. I just never gave the keys back. I was like, F this, I'm just gonna just show up and just keep working in the space. And then I think by the time January came around, he was like, okay, you actually gotta like pay something. And so <laughs> then we actually put a deposit down and we started building. Um, and then for two years, we operated out of that space. And the first year we just really did programs and exhibitions. Mm -hmm. The second year we started membership. Um, and then our second year where we started membership, we kind of curated our studio space. So we okay. bought desks. We had this whole co-working vibe and we mm -hmm. thought we were doing it. And that's not what our artists wanted. When we got feedback in 2018, mm -hmm. um, by the end of 2018, they said, we kind of want to create our own space. So when you come into Tila today at the goat farm, yeah, um, you see that there's no system to how people are creating. It's like they just kind of create their own environment. Mm -hmm. And because they now they're a part of the community and building it out. And we closed okay. down East Point primarily because um, people hated traveling all the way to East Point. <laughs> and I did East Point because it was convenient for me, but it wasn't convenient for my community. Mm -hmm. So I had to do a lot of social listening in those first two and a half years of building out a flagship, of trying out, testing. We were always testing and iterating programs, space, and realizing that what we were doing, some part elements were working and some weren't. And so we had to be really smart and strategic um, this year and mm -hmm. figure out how we can bring more people in and empower them. So right now we serve 53 women in the city of Atlanta versus the 20 that we served in the past two years in terms of our membership portfolio. Wow, okay. So there has been a lot yeah, more of growth. Yeah, of growth. Just from just listening and shutting operations and mm -hmm. taking leaps and being willing to pivot. I think that's what people really need to lean into. Yeah, and was it hard to really, it, it seems like, you know, the, the right phrase is give your idea away. Oh, in a yeah, sense, right? Yeah, like, because yeah. once you know you have this idea and it starts working, and and you know you do the, uh, someone challenges you to do an art show in three weeks, which is insane that you pull that off. By the way, that's, that's dope. <laughs> you do get a little possessive about the idea, so I'm, yes. I, what was what went through your head when you were faced with that challenge of letting oh, yeah. parts of the ideas go? Well, I think there's times where you have to decide whether or not you're an artist or an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I had to decide at that moment, 
okay, it's Tiffany the entrepreneur. So what is mm. the best business decision mm -hmm. to grow and sustain a thriving community? Right. And when I had to look at the finances of what it took from an operational standpoint to sustain East Point versus accepting um, a partnership with a goat farm mm -hmm. and being in a more centralized location, it was the best business decision for the organization. And I think I, I have to decide that a lot, you know, and really just say, okay, let's just shut off that artist brain. Let's shut off that. This is my idea. Owner. Right. You right. know, it's like, no, this is a business. Mm -hmm. You're an entrepreneur. You're a small business owner. How can you really grow and scale and that's sustainable and that's not going to like cause a deficit in the bank account? Right. Um, and this seemed like the best option. And we got a lot of like kind of, you know, uh, backlash because people are like, mm. oh, the East Point location, we love it. We want you to be there. This, this, this. I can't believe you're leaving. Why? Where are you going to go? Mm -hmm. And was this, this couldn't have been the best decision that we made okay. all year. <laughs> yeah. Who who was this backlash from? The OGs, the people who like uh, grew up in the space, mm -hmm. invested in the space, painted the space. Mm -hmm. You know, we did. I mean, it, it was hard for me to say, oh, I painted these walls. I've installed this track lighting. I invested over $20,000 in building out a space that now I actually have to leave. Mm-hmm what is that going to do? You know, did I make the wrong decision? Mm -hmm. And I just had to trust my gut, you know what I mean? And yeah. just knew that those three people out did not outweigh the 30 people that right. was advocating for the pivot. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I had to like definitely not do emotional, <laughs> emotional. Right. Kind of turn that center <laughs> yeah, off. Yeah. Like gotta that. turn that off, you right. know? And so what was the response to this new location and how old is, is this new space? We've only been here for maybe like five or six months. Wow. Um, okay. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, people were apprehensive. Our first six weeks here at the goat farm, our studio remained empty. No one came in and worked. Wow. No one was, no one knew what to do. <laughs> and people were like, what is this? How do we make this our home? Um, there was a lot of apprehension in the first like four to six weeks. And I think we had one artist, her name is Alicia Renee Ball, and she started coming here and building these amazing sculptures for this exhibition that we were doing in the in the summertime. Um, and then I think once we started documenting her working, people started coming in. So now you have Toya, Chandler, Maya, Antonisha's over here. Um, some This artist right here, Kiaro. So we have now more of our community coming in and working and we see more participation in our open crit nights. Mm -hmm. Just from that one artist taking the lead. But I was yeah. a little nervous because we were yeah. like, Here's an empty studio, work in the empty studio. And people are like, uh, what is that? But now people have brought in furniture. They've just, we've kind of just made it our home and it works. Yeah. One of the things I like to talk about with people that are running social initiatives, um, you know, and I've asked you this question a little bit already, but you know, backlash. So, so you not only got backlash from members of your own community, but backlash when you initially started, you know, from family, from, you know, different, uh, like the guy who owned the, the East Point location. Um, and, and you overcame it all, right? What about um, backlash from yourself? Like the internal monologue of like, is this the right thing to do? Is this going to make a difference? Is this idea insane? Um, what kept you moving forward? 
when those ideas, when those thoughts came into your head? Yeah, that that's also a really good question because I think people don't realize the mental trauma and psychology that entrepreneurs have to go through, mm -hmm. especially even when you're creative. Yeah. Because sometimes we can already be self-deprecating, <laughs> and um, which is not healthy. So I've been really strategic about surrounding myself with people who've been through the fire um, and and not being afraid to say, I don't know, or I feel sad or I feel uncomfortable or I don't know what the next best step is. Mm -hmm. And I have invested in my own education in the sense that I've um, spent two and a half years with the Center for Civic Innovation as a fellow and then I was a resident and we were equipped with um, not only strategic coaching, but leadership coaching. So I had a leadership coach for the past two and a half years that coached me up, mm -hmm. right? And allowed me to think through my own insecurities and figure out how to shore up my weaknesses and optimize my strengths. So I think that was critical for me to be successful and not break down. Cause there's some, like, especially this year, there were some moments where I was just like, F this, I'm gonna be my own artist. I'm moving to Berlin. I quit. I don't care about what anybody else says. I don't care about this community. You know what I mean? And everyone goes through that when you wanna throw yeah. up your hands. But I've been very good about telling those people that I don't know or I feel uncomfortable. And they've been able to um, really reshift my journey to mm -hmm. make sure that I'm still on the path. But I have to get up and meditate every day. I have to pray aggressively. I have to get my mind right before I enter into the world mm -hmm. because it will tear you down if you are not mentally sound when you wake up and you are about to do this work. Right. Because you get so many no's and sometimes it's emotionally and physically draining to your spirit to mm -hmm. know that you're doing something for the greater good that yeah. can impact everyone. And sometimes it's just hard, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's just hard, you know? <laughs> So what was your I made it moment? You, you know, like, like <laughs> I like the face you made, but like the, you know, after the whole, you know, screw this, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm moving to Berlin, <laughs> which is you probably should actually sometime, but yeah, um, it's coming up in the near future. It's coming up. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Like next five to 10. Okay, cool, sure. cool, cool. Um, what was the, one of those moments where you were like, this is going to work. This, this is this is plausible and, and I'm building something that, that can outlast um, me and, and mm. go further than the, the vision that I had for it. Absolutely. I, you know, I think we're still getting to that point. Okay. I think we just hit our stride the, this okay, year, cool. like June. Really? June, yeah. That's when we cool. were like, this is an idea that's going to work. Mm -hmm. um, I think it took a lot of hard conversations in Q1 and Q2 of me really simplifying my operations and putting... I think founders in the social enterprise space don't put themselves first, and that's why their organizations fail. So, and I know that sounds really ass backwards, but I say that because in the first two and a half years of Tila, I never paid myself. Right. Never paid myself. I was putting all my money into allowing other people to do my, quote unquote my job because I was working. Um, at Cox Communications for the past two and a half years. I just oh, quit okay. in April. So okay. I was not full-time Tila. I was doing Tila in the wee hours in the morning through my job during the day yeah. secretly. And then <laughs> crazy, putting a lot of crazy hours at night. And I was like, oh, you know, I'll just grind it out so I can pay a staff, then I'll pay myself. Yeah. And then I had to be like, no, Tiffany, like you have to put yourself first. 
what does that look like? Okay, does that mean, that means getting over some overhead costs. So whether that's downsizing our location and coming into a partnership with a goat farm, that means seeing how we can do more and be more productive with a stronger and smaller team. And that had to take a lot of tough conversations um, to do that. And then I was like, we also need to be more strategic. We don't need to do everything under the sun, nor can we solve every single problem for the artists. Mm -hmm. So what are our most important problems that we want to tackle this year and how are we going to do that? That is increasing the dollar amount um, of distribution of funds to our artists. So securing contracts through our agency program so we can actually pay, start paying ourselves, increasing mm -hmm. the value of our membership um, and really building and championing that community. Um, doing less art shows because art shows are so labor intensive and sink a lot of costs because you don't sell work. Right. But let's produce and curate shows where we are actually making money. So from our three shows this year, we've probably generated over $20,000 just from wow. doing three shows and, and, and not doing like 15, yeah. you know? So being really strategic about um, our, our costs and our personnel and how we're operating has allowed us to grow. So we like mm -hmm. have really seen the in increase of investment through our community partners, our um, membership, as well as like in, in public spaces right. and securing really like strong partnerships and sponsorships. Um, what changed about the art shows? Cause that's really interesting yeah. that, that they went, you know, you cut back on frequency, but made more money. Hello. <laughs> that's, that's like yes. the best scenario to be in. Yes. So you want to be in spaces where people like if our mission and and if our vision is when black women artists are thriving, um, they have the power to change their the world communities and their neighborhoods. Thriving is the underlying point. So we're trying to create sustainable ecosystem of women that are financially and creatively independent. Um, so what spaces will allow that to happen? We partnered with Blavity. Mm -hmm. So we really looked at who we could partner with to get more exposure to our black women artists. So we partnered with the mayor's office in Q1 to do an exhibition in their, um, in Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms office, which had a lot of high traffic yeah. dignitaries. So just think that level wow. of exposure. We partnered with Blavity, who is a West Coast tech startup um, that does this two day conference that brings 1500 women together at the America's Mart we were selling like crazy at that show. So that was a high traffic, high volume thing. And then we also, this past week, did the high rise show that opened downtown at 34 Peachtree, where four organizations came together to curate a multi-level experience. It was funded by Fulton County. It was funded mm -hmm. by the Goat Farm. Over a thousand people came. So really it's about traffic and volume, right? And then I'm a salesperson naturally. So I made sure I had my iPad loaded, my square set up, and we were just swiping people's cards and we were selling off the artwork. And wow. that is what I try to do is how to really think about what are great intersections where we're getting a diverse audience, high traffic, mm -hmm. um, and we can actually make it. The, that probability becomes higher to actually make those conversions. Yeah. Whereas a regular gallery open where you get 150 people that just want to take pictures by the art, that's <laughs> ineffective. You know what I mean? Right. So I had to shift my perspective about how we show up and what places we showed up in. That reminds me of one of the best pieces of advice I got when I first started like uh, the company. And it was, if people want to pay you, make it easy as hell. For them yes. to pay you. Like if, if <laughs> you know, if they have card, you better have a square. You or, better you know? have a square. And <laughs> like, <laughs> we were the only really we sold the most Tila yeah. sold the most work on Friday. 
Congratulations. That's amazing. Thank you. That's, we wow. we were like red dot city. Like, and I was like, <laughs> I was not playing with y'all. Right. <laughs> I was focused, you know, and I think when people see that level of professionalism and care, like mm-hmm. I make sure that I know my artist's practices. So I come to open crits. I mm-hmm. see them in the studio. I make sure when they're in the spaces, I can articulate their vision and their artist statement better than they can. So the buyer knows, oh, this girl is invested. So I right. want people want to buy from someone that's actually invested in the artist. Yeah, show them that you care. Yeah, you know, like it's it's not just it's not a just a monetary transaction. Absolutely. Okay. Interesting. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit more in detail about what Tila specifically does for the artist, and um, I want I, I wanted you to tell me a little bit more about the Garden Fellowship. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> Our babies. <laughs> yes. So um, Tila's business model is three tiers. Okay. Um, so our first tier is our membership uh, program, which is, a, which is a subscription model where our members can pay an annual or monthly fee to opt in um, for a full year to free access to studio space, professional development programs, and exhibition opportunities. Um, and through that, we also run our fellowship, which is the Garden Fellowship. Mm -hmm. Um, which we award a one-year residency program for five Georgia-based black women to not only exhibit in Miami during art week, but also come back for a homecoming show in Atlanta Um, and also get some national press and professional development as well. And we see that as we raise for the um, Garden Fellowship. So this year there's $100,000 being invested in directly into these artists, 20,000 each um in in every capacity that we can and the goal is to say hey if our twenty thousand investment can go into them how can they scale their career um and make it international and some success stories that we had from last year's gardens garden fellows was um one of our artists um she actually just recently got the mocha ga Mm -hmm. residency program um, which is a fifteen thousand dollar cash investment to their practice she exhibited at the California African American Museum in LA um, in March, and she oh actually gosh. sold the piece that she was wow. exhibiting. And now I think she secured an exhibition in New York. And that happened all after our Garden Fellowship. So, and we were the first organization to actually exhibit a full compilation of her work. We did her solo exhibition at Tila last year. Wow. So, just to see those types of wins um, and knowing that our direct investment actually really gets that level of traction. And we're working on case studies on mm-hmm. this because, like, our first Garden Fellowship was last year. And we're actually going to be putting together case studies of why investing in the arts really works and on a very strategic level. Mm-hmm. Um, so, that's our membership and Garden Fellowship. And then our second tier is really running our agency program where I act as a conduit to arts, um, well, organizations who are less, who are interested in hiring artists but don't have a diverse prof- portfolio of artists to select from. Mm-hmm. I actually pitch to commercial real estate organizations, public art institutions, and say, hey, we have a 53 women that you can choose from. Right. Select. And that has been able to generate probably over, I would say $30,000 this year in just wow. securing those opportunities for our um, our members. And then the next thing is that, 
you know, we don't want to just be Atlanta based. We want to grow Tila. Mm -hmm. So our third tier we're going to be launching in 2020 is really figuring out how do we create the LinkedIn for black women artists mm -hmm. to actually build a more um, cohesive network nationwide and expand it to New Orleans, Detroit, L.A., mm -hmm. and actually start really building that ecosystem um, for women across the globe. Um, I've done a, a, a lot of these interviews um, at this point, and one of the things that keeps coming up in my conversation is the idea of community. Mm -hmm. And the answer is so different based <laughs> on everyone that I've talked to for obvious reasons. Yeah. I wanted to know what community means to you. Whoa. <laughs> um, I think community, you know, for me really means uh, a space, whether in person or virtually, where people can foster dialogue and not debates. Because I think oftentimes we're always trying to defend ourselves in conversations with people or our perspective. But to be in true dialogue means that you actually have a true community. That means that whether or not you come, you interact with someone else from a different background, demographic, age, race, ethnicity, um, you can actually converse with them in a meaningful way to shape up who you are. I think that's community because a lot of times people just want to share their ideas. They don't want to be dismissed because they think a certain way um, or be debated or undermined because of their, their thoughts. And I think what we try to do um, here at Tila is be good listeners and be good mm -hmm. dialoguers and be able to have conversations that are hard to have. And, and I think that level of engagement really fosters true community because so many people feel so different about here, but we try to foster conversation in a very meaningful way where at least everyone feels heard. And we don't always get it right, mm -hmm. but I think being heard and seen is the two most successful factors of building a strong community. Because right. um, everybody just wants to be acknowledged and mm -hmm. be heard. And it doesn't happen through debate, it happens through dialogue. Thank you so much. This was, I had yeah. a great time. Thank you so much for that <laughs> Of course. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, we're done. Yay. Yeah. You guys <laughs> need a podcast, man, for sure. Like, <laughs> A special thanks to Tiffany for her time and being a great guest. Thank you all so much for listening. Next week is our last episode of Snapshot Atlanta. Not forever, just for the season. I'll be talking to Jenny Levison, founder of Super Jenny and the Zadie Project, a nonprofit organization feeding Atlanta's hungry children, families, and seniors. This episode is a product of Audiographies, edited by Jacob Smolian. The music was created by Yolanda Weathers, Trey Leon, and Keenan Willis. This episode was sponsored by no one, but it could be sponsored by you. Please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash audiographies and consider becoming a patron so we can keep bringing you stories like this one. We'll see you in the next one.